0: Hello, and welcome to ABS In Mind, the podcast from the staff here at DebtWire ABS. We'll take you behind the curtains of the asset-backed securities markets and the loans that they help finance. I'm Al Yoon, and I'll be hosting today. Hello. Today we're going to take another look at what's happened with residential mortgage loans during the pandemic, And uh, I think commercial mortgages have drawn more scrutiny uh, everywhere due to the binary risks there, but uh, the raising market is much bigger. uh, So it certainly warrants some airtime too. And plus I cover that for DebtWire ABS and so (laughs) it's near and dear to my heart. Anyway, we'll hear today from two analysts who cover the bonds, including new and existing non-agency and credit risk transfer issues at Moody's investor service. These analysts are Ola hanun Costa and Yehuda Forster, who follow the RMBS sector in different capacities for Moody's. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Al.
1: Hi, Al. Thank you.
0: Great. Um, Okay, so non-agency mortgages. There were some pretty dire expectations as the economy went through the ringer in the spring. Um, The expectations for mortgages were so bad that they at least in some large part, triggered the liquidity crisis that just about toppled a number of REITs. Uh, But the sector seemed to weather that storm, uh, generally speaking. So uh, I'm not sure who would like to start, but uh, Ola or Yehuda, uh, tell us about the current state of performance uh, in the various non-agency sectors. And uh, also, I mean, if you think there'll be some improvement in 2021, any signs of improvement, that is.
1: Sure, I can. I can start. So we are seeing a decline um, in the number of borrowers that have been uh, enrolled in payment relief program. As you know, in early in the in the COVID crisis, uh, there has been significant number of uh, relief programs for the borrowers, uh, be it uh, payment forbearance, where the borrower uh, holds off. Uh, payment, so it goes into a payment holiday, and at the end of that payment holiday, they go into a payment plan, or a payment deferral, where the borrower uh, also goes into a payment holiday, but that missed payment usually is tagged at the end of the mortgage term. Uh, so we uh, and we have seen a spike in the summer for the number of borrowers who entered into these payments relief programs. and. Uh, we have seen uh, a slowdown in the new forbearance requests or new payment holiday entries but also we have been started we started to see that the pace of exits from these payment holiday has also declined foreclosure levels have also declined or remain steady uh, but that's really mainly driven to uh, the foreclosure moratorium but we do expect that to increase when the moratoriums um, are, are lifted mm-hmm. now okay. briefly if uh, briefly, just wants to highlight in terms of the relief programs, and I think the GSCs really have been the uh, the setters in terms of the types of programs that are offered to the borrowers. Uh, so the GSCs offer 12 months of forbearance. Uh, the PLS landscape is somewhat inconsistent, but again. Uh, uh, very similar to the GSCs. It starts with either three to six months, but it can go up to 12 months, particularly in states such as New York and California uh, that uh, that have these mandates for even non-GSC loans.
0: Ola, what about uh, the difference in the, the quality of the borrower's uh, credit profile? I mean, can you sort of uh, you know break that down for us at all a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, I could speak mainly to... Um, you know, to the borrower quality and the new deals that that have been issued post COVID. And generally across the board, both in non-agency as well as GSC deals, we've seen um, a tightening in um, credit quality among the borrowers. Uh, In non-agency specifically, what we've seen, we've seen a significant decrease in the percentage of cash out refis that have been included in those deals. Um, which is actually pretty different for the GSE deals, which the GSE deals have been consistent in the cash five. So it looks like for the agency, non-agency uh, deals, there had been you know, uh, some significant tightening around, uh, you know, around that kind of loans. Also, a drop in self-employed uh, borrowers. Uh, for example, you know, we looked at uh, in, in the J.P. Morgan shelf. A uh, pre-COVID deal, which had twenty-five percent uh, self-employed, and post-COVID deal had only five percent. We've seen that mm-hmm. trend, you know, generally, as well as a rise in FICO's and a drop in DTI. By post-COVID, you mean
0: since, um, like, since March and April, right? For instance, that's what I mean. I, I mean, since COVID started, yeah. right? Okay. I just wanted to uh, basically ask you, Ola, about uh, um, in in season deals, the you know the difference in performance based on 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 credit quality.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's what I wanted to complement what uh, Yehuda was mentioning. We did see a difference in the percentage of non cash flowing loans, which are really the reflection. Uh, that reflects the number of borrowers that have gone into these payments release and we have seen differences among different products. So for the Prime Jumbo deals originated post-2009, uh, the, that percentage of non-cash-flowing borrowers ranged between five to seven percent for the GSC risk transfer transactions. Non-cash-flow uh, non-cash-flowing loans, as a share of, of current balance, also range between four to eight percent. But if we move to uh, a legacy uh, transaction pre-crisis, um, as well um, as RPL. Uh, for the uh, legacy transactions, we saw up to 15 to uh, 19% uh, in terms of percentage of loans uh, in, in payment relief. Uh, but to step back in terms of how these delinquencies and deterioration and performance compare to the financial crisis, these numbers are much lower. Uh, and the great financial crisis... In asset classes such as subprime and alt A, defaults reached over 30 and 40% of the collateral. So while these delinquencies are elevated, they are much further from what we saw in the great financial crisis.
0: I mean, I I just wonder how, I mean, this is not something for a credit rating company to comment on, I know, but I just wonder how investors take that because, uh, you know, I often hear people talk about. Uh, You know, the delinquency numbers are nothing like the, the great financial crisis, but I mean, they're still elevated. Right, I mean, so it's just—is uh, it uh, you know, cup half full, half half empty type thing? All depends on where you bought the bonds, I suppose. But um, you know, uh, that said, Ola or, or Yehuda, tell me about—I uh, mean—the the direction. I mean, you've stated exactly you know what's happening right now, but what uh, what kind of what's the momentum looking like right now as we enter enter the end of the year? Not that uh, you know there's a lot of I mean, I know there's a lot of uncertainty as to what happens with the economy and uh, stimulus programs, et cetera going forward, but uh, I mean, what are you looking
2: at uh, at the end of the year here? so for the most part, well, we're seeing well we haven't you know I guess while we've heard some some kind of uh, information that uh, lenders may be relaxing some of the you know tightening that you know, that they put in place when, when COVID hit, we haven't seen that yet in the deals that we've rated. So it remains to be seen sort of how much, you know, relaxation of the tight, tighter standards will we see going forward? You know, we don't expect, you know, the tightening to last forever as the economy normalizes. We do expect some loosening. The other thing is that one of the, one of the things that the issuers have been doing is that they've been excluding loans that are in COVID, like for new deals, excluding, especially for Prime GSC, they've been excluding the borrowers who have been in COVID relief plans from the new deals. You know, going forward, A, what will happen around underwriting standards, you know, we expect some relaxation. Ultimately, whether borrowers will continue to, you know, exclude, sorry, whether issuers will continue to exclude borrowers who are in COVID relief plans remain to be seen and also there is an interesting dynamic that borrowers who are in these relief plans they're being reported as current to the credit bureaus so their credit scores are not really reflecting the delinquency you know the non-payment so to the extent that these borrowers do get new loans refinance it'll be interesting to see how lenders deal with this whether they'll be digging in further to, you know, aside from just looking at the credit score, but trying to understand whether the borrowers had been, you know, missing contractually missing payments on their loans or not. And if they don't, you know, there's a risk that the credit scores may be elevated, you know, artificially elevated. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Is that something that uh, you take into account when uh, rating new deals?
2: As of now, we're, this is not something uh, that we've seen yet, so uh, mm-hmm. something that we'll be discussing uh, going forward. Oh, okay, so, so something to keep an eye
0: on for sure. You know, Yehuda, you mentioned that, uh, or maybe it was Ola mentioned, uh, you know, some, some deals uh, or they're not including um you know forbearance loans and uh and i'm thinking particularly about uh the gsc crt deals or uh we can even narrow that down the freddie max crt deals since fannie is out of the picture at the moment um and uh, i do hear a lot from investors i mean i like those very much i saw that you know some of the street investment bank research i mean they recommend the the newer crt bonds um and uh you know certainly that that's you know the demand for that kind of deal is is reflected in in the pricing but um uh, you know for for either of you i mean are there any you know particular concerns on uh crt reference pool collateral going forward um based on you know what you think might uh, might be uh assembled into new deals into new reference pools
2: i I can point out there's one you know one phenomenon which I think is worth noting. at the same time, you know we think that the risk is somewhat mitigated, but there has been a pretty substantial increase in um, the use of uh, alternative you know appraisal waivers in the GSC deals. And that is um, you know that's been something that the GSC has put into place a while ago because they have such good data, you know, every, every appraisal gets reported to them and then they're able to, um, you know, compare uh, the values that they get on new loans with, the, with their database, which, which has, you know, tremendous amounts of information. And they're leveraging that to then uh, decide when an appraisal is not necessary. Now, during COVID, obviously because of the logistics around um, appraisers getting into the homes, we saw a pretty dramatic increase in the use of appraisal waivers. For example, a stacker deal, DNA deal before COVID hit had 11% uh, appraisal waivers where one after COVID hit had almost 40% of the pool uh, appraisal waivers. Again, we think that there are good mitigants to the risk, the risk being that, you know, this is a, a more data-driven uh, valuation or valuation check without a physical property inspection. But, um, you know, some of the mitigants around that relate to the tight eligibility requirements that the GSCs have, as well as the GSC's oversight, as well as the fact that they have. it's something that they've gotten comfortable with the risk and they, you know, they have... They themselves have removed rep and warranty relief for appraisal waiver loans, showing that they, mm-hmm. you know, they're really comfortable with their own process.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important thing to watch, Yehuda, because uh, in my discussions with investors, I mean, pretty much anybody who is bullish the market, and that's ninety percent of the people who are out there on the residential mortgage market, uh, always hang their hat on, um, you know, when we look about, look at potential severities gone down the road. They always hang their hat on that, uh, you know, there's plenty of equity in these in these properties. And therefore, you know, if worse comes to worse, then, you know, the actual severity uh, write down on that loan will be nothing or very little. And so we want to definitely want to pay attention to, you know, uh, appraisal waivers. Um, you know, I myself, I mean, I'm trying to sell, I'm one, I'm one of the 20,000 people trying to sell an apartment in New York City right now, and uh, my eyes popped out of my head when I saw the appraisal, and because, I mean, there is no way that my apartment is worth what the appraisers say it is, <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, and I cover the mortgage market, so, I mean, you know, I think I have, like, you know, some degree of credibility in saying that. Anyway. So uh, let's, let's move on then, um, just in the interest of time. I wanted to take a look at, a, uh, at a, another new-ish sector for the non-agency markets, uh, and that's uh, SFR, uh, single-family rental uh, loans and bonds. And uh, that's been a real winner this year. Is that right?
2: That is right. Um, this, the SFR, or the single-family rental uh, sector, has performed well. And, th- you know, that mainly relates to the fact that there's been a strong demand for um, single-family suburban properties during COVID. And, um, and that's reflected in the, you know, the rental fundamentals for these deals and occupancy rates being very high um, and have increased. And also the fact that the pro- home prices have been um, you know at a very high level and remain fairly stable even during the crisis. So um, these deals are you know at least the way we, we rate them are very um, dependent on they're, they're very related to home 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 prices is the key kind of the key rating component of these deals. Okay, and
0: uh, looking at past uh, SFR deals, uh, Ola, is there anything you know notable to say about uh, the performance of the the sector in general, or like yes. one shelf versus another shelf?
1: No, actually, I think the the performance has been consistent, uh, and we've observed some elevated delinquency levels. In, uh, across transactions uh but how uh, however overall the cash flows uh they're still re- relatively robust and tech, you know approximately about 90% of the pre-covid collections um and that's really as Yehuda mentioned is, is really driven by a very strong demand for single family homes uh as many many people moved to the suburbs uh and and did, you know were able to 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 adjust to working from home and so needed bigger space. Uh, so the uh, overall performance has been strong in, in, in single family rental. And as, a, um, uh, as an illustration, we have uh, in, in, in research that we published about heat map across asset classes, SFR is one of the asset classes that has been identified as um, a pretty robust and and not uh, affected by the the, the recent uh, deterioration yeah. in performance.
0: Okay. Okay. Again, just to, uh, you know, throw in what I've been hearing from investors, uh, you know, a lot, you know, some people who have sort of looked at this sector for some time are definitely now interested in taking a bite out of it. Um, and uh, I know that there's been, you know, tremendous demand for the bond deals that uh, that the issuers have brought this year. And uh, and, and that said, I mean, I, I guess there have been some changes to uh, structure, deal structure or collateral uh, in the SFR deals as the backdrop for the sector improves. Yehuda, could you tell us uh, what Moody's has observed there?
2: Yeah, I, not so much, well, okay. So yes, th- I mean, from one perspective, leverage has been high in these deals. In other words, from the issuer's perspective, they're able to you know, issue a significant amount of debt against the property value and they're taking advantage of the high property values and also issuers has been good because of the low funding costs the tight spreads in these deals you know one one um big trend that we're seeing or inquiries and and kind of uh is around issuers wanting more flexibility regarding the um ability to substitute properties from the pool so we're seeing issuers asking for higher amounts of um, substitution rights where they can take, you know, certain loans uh, certain properties from the pool and substitute them with other pool, other, other properties, you know, the risk that we always focus on is whether the pool could be, there could be some kind of an adverse selection or whether the pool composition would deteriorate as a result of the substitution. And we look for mitigants to, you know, to balance out that risk. Okay. I mean, is it
0: too soon to say whether there has been ab- adverse selection? I mean, it, these are just new deals you're talking about, I guess, right?
2: Yeah, these are new deals, but there has, you know, there there, there has not. Uh, uh, we have not seen that these provisions have have negatively impacted the deals. Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the only trans- because
2: it's too soon, right?
1: Yes, it is too soon, and also just to clarify that. Uh, absent of substitution clauses in these transactions, sponsors are able to, uh, instead of substitute, they are able to release certain properties in certain MSAs. uh, What this reference is in the transactions as premium release and these properties uh, are released at a premium uh, to to the trust. So the ability to exit certain areas and remain in certain geographic areas and MSAs does exist in existing transactions. The substitution, it's, it's another alternative for sponsors and to uh, change the, uh, the MSA composition. But just to clarify that the ability to, to shift from, uh, from one MSA to another is currently available in the form of a premium release.
0: I'd like to just back up for a minute uh um, actually quite a bit i I forgot to ask earlier i want you know when we're talking about general performance uh of non agency deals uh over the past several months uh could one of you sort of describe the uh downgrade activity that uh that you've been involved with and where that's where yep. that's fallen
1: absolutely i can I can take that so The rating actions that we have taken, as as we mentioned, COVID-19 did impact the asset performance uh, broadly and to to, to varying degrees across the asset classes. Uh, But the majority of these uh, transactions, the impact of performance deterioration really affected securities at the lower end of the rating scale or the more junior bonds in these transactions. And we have taken actions across Products such as RPL, uh, post crisis, prime jumbo, uh, as well as legacy RMBS. So, to walk you through in terms of the, the, the magnitude as well as the rationale for these rating actions, um, I'll, I'll start with RPL, which are uh, RMBS backed by reperforming collateral. And most of that collateral uh, is really consistent with legacy, as in pre crisis origination. Uh, Actions on on RPL, we downgraded about 45 junior tranches from 13 transactions, and in in the magnitude of of the entire uh, portfolio that we rate, we rate about 75 RPL transactions. So quite a small um, number of deals were affected. Um, And the rationale for this is really, as I mentioned, the high payment uh, forbearance and deferral levels that we've seen across transactions. Uh, and in many of these deals, the missed payment uh, could be passed as losses to the trust. And so there has been some, uh, some, some losses coming in. Um, and, and again, the most, uh, the most junior bonds are the most affected uh, w- with that. In the prime jumbo sector, again we took very small number of transactions were affected uh, about 11 deals uh, 16 junior bonds the most junior bond of the structure and the the, the transactions or the effect, the actions were primarily focused on in in one shelf w- that has a stop advance feature uh, in which that the interest Payment to the bonds can be reduced. So it's a very specific uh, risk that can affect these bonds in this particular structure and, 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 and shelf. In the legacy RMVS, uh, our actions were predominantly on, uh, on subprime and Alt-A junior bonds that have uh, what we call weak recoupment mechanism to missed interest and we downgraded about 439 tranches from 253 transactions. Um, And again, these are junior bonds uh, that if they miss interest, which we are seeing and and continue to expect that interest shortfall will continue in these deals when servicers recoup their advances. Um, And so the actions were really driven on interest shortfall. We did take an action on one GSC risk transfer deal. And I know you mentioned earlier, the risks in GSC uh, risk transfer transactions and structures, but there's one transaction that we currently rate, which is Tacker 2014 DN1. That transaction, the rating action there uh, was primarily driven because the deal documents do not have any language that excludes uh, a credit event that is caused by natural disaster. And it's one of these tiered severity deals. And so when loans are 180 days delinquent, they are taken at uh, they are taken out of the reference pool at a tiered severity. And so with the spike of the delinquencies, we could see a, 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 a spike in the credit events in these deals. But that was the only Stacker or GST deal that uh, mm-hmm. we've taken action on.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I know regarding that uh, those early fixed severity deals that the investor community was uh, up in arms at least initially that uh, uh, the GSEs or the FHFA, whoever's controlling this, uh, that you know made no sort of special provision for these uh, COVID-related forbearances, uh, given that uh, it's sort of it's a federally, uh, you know, caused by federal legislation. So it was pretty interesting. Um, but I, I certainly understand the rating. I mean, if uh, if a bond's going to take a write down, then you certainly have to have to account for that, or potentially take a write down. And uh, you know, so well you've you've basically painted a picture of uh, there has been some you know some increased credit risk, but uh, it's also, I mean. I wouldn't say it's 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 marginal because um, just from the viewpoint of uh, when we got into this year, uh, January, February, uh, many people were, were extremely bullish on the U.S. housing market. And for that reason, a lot of funds started going down in credit, you know, for, for some more yield. And I'm um, just in the process of doing it now, but I'm um, trying to study a lot of these opportunity funds, mortgage opportunity funds that are still... You know, looking you know down six, eight, ten percent this year, even after re- after the uh, uh, remarkable re- remarkable recovery we've seen since since July. So uh, there is uh, plenty of credit risk out there and uh, and people are pricing for it. So anyway, uh, let's just uh, move on a little bit here. Um I wanted to finish up here with with some current events, so to speak. Uh, The CFPB last week finalized its rules related related to qualified mortgage loans. And among changes uh, were, well, the CFPB uh, removed the requirement to follow uh, the quote-unquote appendix Q regulation on income verification and replaces the DTI test with a limit based on the loan's pricing. Yehuda, I think you've uh, made some comments on this before, and I'm just wondering if you could sort of explain this to our listeners uh, how that uh, QM rule change will affect non-agency lending.
2: Right. So you mentioned uh, you know replacing the DTI with um, more of a pricing based measure. Uh, you know, so that a QM the loan will be QM if the the interest rate is less than. Um, I think it's two two 2.25% over the APOR, which is the, the average um, interest rate of that time. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, and it used to be DTI, which was calculated with very prescriptive rules around what kind of income and asset documentation that you could use. And that's what's, you know, Appendix Q. So taking away Appendix Q and the DTI um, threshold gives lenders a lot more flexibility around you know the types of income documentation that they can now use because there are no there are not that kind of the, the prescription is not there so and 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 also the DTI hard threshold is not there and it's more this you know a pricing dynamic so i think in general it's a much more open kind of a rule which gives lenders a lot more flexibility we expect that the credit box will expand as a result for loans that will qualify for QM. You know, previously, since the QM rule was um, en- enacted, the QM box was very tight. You know, credit was very narrow in that, um, at least in the non-agency space. In the GSD space, they were be- the beneficiaries of the, the GSC patch, which basically said that any any mortgage, um, uh, almost any mortgage that the is approved for purchase would be, uh, you know, by definition, QM. Now, that GSC patch is also going away, so there's going to be more of a level playing field around uh, QM. Um, now, we expect the credit box to expand. At the same time, you know, there was a benefit to this Q- previous QM role in a certain sense, that there was a very bright line test for whether or not you passed it, because you had to, you know, had very specific documentation. DTA had to, DTI had to be calculated in a very prescribed way. You have more flexibility now, and that bright line test is sort of now more fuzzy. That could make qm loans uh, more open to legal legal risk than previously you know when you had a very clear way of saying whether it complied or not now you you potentially add in some uh, borrower challenges uh, or some you know openings for borrower challenges around that the as far as the gsc patch going away we looked at a few deals a few recent gsc deals and we we tried to figure out, you know, which which loans would be non-QM under the pricing threshold, and it was very small. So we don't think mm-hmm. that the GSE patch being removed is going to be a meaningful constraint on the kind of loans that the GSEs will buy, um, you know, if, if they are only limited to QM loans. And Yehuda, if uh, the credit box will expand
0: for loans that qualify for... For QM, uh, you know, can you say anything about what this might mean for what had been a budding non-QM market?
2: You know, it's that's just an interesting, interesting question. And you know, one one possibility is that you know you you had lenders previously shying away from anything that was non-QM because of the there was you know legal risk associated with the ability to repay rules. To the extent that you now have more. Loans sort of qualifying for QM, you know, the non-QM lenders might have more competition for the higher quality, um, you know, loans that used to be non-QM that are now uh, falling out of non-QM, becoming QM. Uh, so you know, lenders that weren't in that market may, you know, maybe or larger lenders, bank lenders, let's say, could be competing for the the higher quality, you know previous non-QM loans, you know, it's a little bit speculative, but, you, you know, potentially you could be left with, you know, in the non-QM market, non-prime market, you know, the, the more, the weaker, the weaker non-QM. The non-QM maybe, maybe might be weaker now. The ones that are real non-QM might be, weaker as opposed to now, you had non-QMs that were near misses or even very high quality loans, Mm -hmm. but they just didn't meet the Appendix Q, you know, prescriptive threshold, a lot of self-employed in the non-agency space. And now you may kind of shrink that, you know, uh, box in the non-QM space. And uh, it may be more of a non-prime, you know, non-QM didn't necessarily mean non-prime. Now, non-QM might mean more non-prime, you know, might be more synonymous with non-prime.
0: That's interesting because, I mean, over the past couple of years, I've you know, spoken with plenty of people who wish that there was a more narrow definition for non-QM. Um, you know, once in a while when we write about non-qm deals and it's say just an expanded prime deal but it's still non-qm um you know you get complaints from the issuers saying like like look we're you know we're not really non-qm i mean we're really prime it's just that it's non-qm <laughs> so that uh, a narrower definition definition would be would be uh welcome uh, from where i sit anyway i think that's uh we've pretty much run short on time here so uh I guess uh we'll 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 stop this conversation now, and uh I mean, I know we've only you know touched the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, on mortgage performance, but Ola and Yehuda, i want to thank you so much for uh spending some time with us here on uh Debt wires uh, a b s and mind podcast thanks you guys thank
2: you Al. pleasure to be here
1: thank you, Al
0: thanks for listening to a b s in mind if you're hungry for the skinny on asset backed bonds residential and commercial mortgage debt, consider DebtWire.com or just tune in here next time. Also look to us on social media.